And we'll get started for this evening. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, it expresses who you are. It expresses um, who we are and how you deal with us. And uh, you give us uh, ways that we can live that continue to please you. And we want to do that. Uh, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who takes what is yours and makes it ours. Would you continue to do that, please? And we ask for it this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me uh, finish Genesis this way. There's a few pictures of Jesus in Genesis. First, Abraham, the royal heir who left the comforts and privileges of home to go to a place he'd never been, living there by faith. Abraham, a picture of the Lord Jesus. Isaac, the promised self-sacrificing one. Jacob, the one who blessed his family. And Joseph, the forgiving and gracious ruler. So some neat pictures of our Jesus in the book of Genesis. Well, I thought it was appropriate tonight, because it's uh, just right after Veterans Day, uh, to look at medals of honor. I had one, um, one light colonel one year who jumped up and was able to tell me about the Medal of Honor. Is there anyone current or former military who wants to jump up and tell us about the Medal of Honor? If not, I brought something to read. Not everyone at once. Okay, I'll read this. Uh, so Medals of Honor, uh, it's the United States of America's highest and most prestigious personal military decoration that may be awarded to recognize U.S. military service members who have distinguished themselves by acts of valor. Normally awarded by the President in the name of the Congress... Uh, and so many times it's called or referred to as the Congressional Medal of Honor. However, the official name of the current award is Medal of Honor. Uh, there's three versions, Army, Navy, and Air Force. Personnel of, Mar of the Marine Corps and Coast Guard receive the Navy version. Uh, and the President typically presents this Medal of Honor at a formal ceremony in Washington, D.C., uh, one recent uh, Medal of Honor winner, uh, let's see, uh, his name was Corporal Jason Dunham. He was awarded the Medal of Honor on April 14, 2004. Corporal Jason Dunham saved the lives of his fellow Marines in Karib, Karabala, Iraq, when he smothered a grenade with his helmet and body. He was posthumously given the Medal of Honor on January 11, 2007. Uh, the truth is, our country honors its special battlefield champions with Medals of Honor. Uh, most of them are posthumous. Sometimes, certain soldiers 
are compelled to step up and step out in extraordinary ways, even to death, for the benefit of others. They choose to endure unmerited suffering, and because of their love and country of uh, country and of cause, they are honored. Distinguished service. Some soldiers are extraordinarily compelled and distinguish themselves on the battlefield, performing above and beyond the call of duty in war against the enemy. Some saints are called by God to do life on the battlefield above and beyond the regular call of duty in the war against the enemy. Those saints are called to serve as God's weapon and his witness. If you haven't figured it out, this is the book of Job. Some saints are called to the battlefield to serve in an extraordinary way. And I think the story of Job is sometimes God steps aside and calls an ordinary saint to become his extraordinary spiritual champion on the battlefield. The only problem is Job has no idea what's happening. (laughs) This is all happening behind the scenes, and yet Job is out here on the battlefield. Important for where we're going with the book of Job. The book of Job, I've entitled uh, Unmerited Suffering. I think you know why. Most people want to know where the land of us, not Oz, (laughs) the land of us, I don't know where it is, and neither does anyone else, really. But there's some pretty good reason to believe it might be in the area that's kind of that gray circle That gray circle could shift to the south and just to the west a little bit more if you wanted, but it's somewhere in that domain. Uh, uh, Uz, or Job, is going to come to us through the line of Shem. Shem, Ham, Japheth, Shem, good, chosen line, through Terah, Again, good, but instead he goes through Nahor rather than through Abraham. In the Bible world, there are Jews and there are Gentiles. That's how the world breaks up if you're a Jewish person, especially if you're an Old Testament Jewish person. There are the Jews, and then there's everyone else who is a Gentile. Job... This needs to blow your mind. Job is a Gentile. Now, Abraham is right there on the cusp because Jacob is renamed Israel, and so this is Abraham is considered the father of Israel. So if you say Abraham is the Jewish side of things, out of which everything Jewish comes, strange, right about the same time you have a Gentile who seems to also be walking with God. 
What? Yeah, I don't know. It's crazy. But God has always had a heart for Jews and for Gentiles. And so from even the very beginning of the Bible, the the book of Job could be actually the oldest book written. But we start with Genesis because 1 through 11 is before Job's day. So we start with Genesis, but Job could actually be the first book written. So Job is very, very ancient. Who is Job? His name means much persecuted. I have no problem if there is actually a person, Job. But there are certain things that Job didn't know. And so Job, someone else may have had to write some things, like an eyewitness, to get the book of Job into, its, into the form we have in the Bible. Where did he get the part from God? I don't know. God told it to someone. Okay? So, we have the book that we have with Job is the main character. Likely, Job existed. Likely, Job was a person. And the story revolves around God and Satan and Job. And then there's some counselors thrown in for good measure in here. When was this written? Uh, Likely during the patriarchal period. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, somewhere in that domain. I think it's probably most likely that it's in Jacob's lifetime, but I don't know exactly. Where? We talked a little bit about the land of Uz. And now the big question for the book of Job. Why was the book of Job written? Many believe to answer the question, why do the righteous suffer? They believe the purpose of the book is to help us understand why the righteous suffer. If that is the purpose of the book of Job, we are left with no answer because that question is never answered in the book of Job. Now, maybe that's part of the reason the book was written. It's also possible that that's not the question the book of Job is trying to answer. I would agree with those who have a problem with why, because why is never addressed. And instead, the book is probably here to reveal, remember this is probably the first book written, it's to tell us, it's to reveal the way God deals with men, with mankind. How does God deal with mankind? The big reveal from the book of Job is he deals with men according to the principle of sovereign grace, not a theology of compensation. And you say, what is a theology of compensation? Uh, We'll talk about this quite a bit in the book of Job, but you believe it because you sang it to your children. You don't remember singing it to your children? Oh, remember the Christmas song? Santa Claus is coming to town? 
He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Scary. (laughs) He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. And what does Santa Claus do? He rewards the good little boys and girls. And what does he do with the bad boys and girls? This is the theology of compensation. God gives as we deserve it. And you say, what? Yes. The theology of compensation is alive and well today. It was alive and well back here. Let's call it 4,000 years ago. It's always been how mankind has thought God deals with him. But it's always been false. And the book of Job reveals it's not a theology of compensation that God uses as he deals with mankind. It's sovereign grace. That's how God deals with men. And you say, well, Bill, a Christmas song. (laughs) Got another one for you. Uh, How long has it been since you've at least thought to yourself, uh, I'd better not do that or the other shoe will drop? What does that mean? Maybe I'm going to boast about something. And if I do, ooh, the other shoe will drop. What is that? The other shoe dropping. Something bad is going to happen to me from God. If I boast, if I this, if I that, the other shoe is going to drop and something bad is going to happen to me because of this. My friends, this, this theology is alive and well today. And mankind still struggles with it. So in the book of Job, possibly the first book written, God lays out, let me tell you how I deal with mankind. And he uses Job and his friends to illustrate how he deals with men, with mankind. So instead of how or or instead of why do the righteous suffer, I think the book of Job is answering the question, how should the righteous respond to unmerited suffering? How should they respond? Not why do the righteous suffer, but how should the righteous respond to unmerited suffering? And here's what the book of Job teaches us by embracing it rather than seeking to escape it. Oh, if Genesis is a good book, Job clears you out. Because <laughs> you think, what? By embracing it, rather than seeking to escape it. Here's just a quick, I think, another uh, proof that that is the purpose. If you look at an overview of Job, or look at the structure of Job, it kind of breaks up into three neat little parts. There's a prologue, which there are two settings 
uh, twice on earth and twice in heaven, and the conflict is set forth. Who is the conflict between? God and Satan. That's where the conflict is. The friends come in. What do the friends see? The friends don't know what's happening, and so the friends begin to offer counsel to Job. And when we look at this next week, you're going to say, oh, oh my goodness. It concludes with God shows up because Job is saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. God shows up, uh, talks to Job a little bit. Job says he covers his mouth and throws more ashes on his head because he's like, I've heard of you, but now I've met you. <laughs> ah. And so Job meets God, and then there's an epilogue. And the conflict is resolved. The conflict that's resolved is how should the righteous suffer or endure unmerited suffering. That's the conflict that gets resolved. My argument for why the book of Job is not on why the righteous suffer, but on how the righteous should endure unmerited suffering. First setting. Hopefully you got to read it. It's only two chapters. Tell me you got through it. It's, it's real easy reading. Next week's not so easy. Hopefully you're reading ahead. We've got Eastern poetry that's kind of hard to follow, but do your best. You got 3 through 37 next week. I know, I know. You can do it. It's like seven chapters a day. It's okay. It's okay. You can do it. Seven chapters for five days, you'll get through it. The first setting is on earth. We learn from the prologue, there once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. And then we find out some interesting information about Job's families. Uh, and Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their home. They would invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, Perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. Job is an amazing person. And so we open in this little drama that's going to unfold, the first scene we open in on, on the earth. And we see Job's character. He's blameless. He has integrity and spiritual maturity. He's upright. His behavior is in harmony with God's ways. His conduct is righteous, devoted, concerned, and others saw it as well. Starting in verse 6, we get the first setting in heaven. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, by the way, that's what, when you see Satan, really in Hebrew his name is Ha-Satan, the accuser. Ha is like the, Satan, Satan, the Satan. So it's not like exactly a name, it's more like a title. So when you read this, 
Hasatan, the Satan, the accuser, shows up to do what? <laughs> Surprisingly, <laughs> accuse. That's why isn't it great to know that we have an advocate at the Father's right hand who is always there to plead for us against Hasatan? Yes, because that can even happen today. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him in his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. And then we read these things that came upon Job in rapid-fire succession. Uh, his, uh, the Sabaeans raided. They steal all the animals and kill the farmhands. While he's still speaking, another messenger shows up. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. While he's still speaking, three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. While he's speaking, another one arrived. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind comes in and collapses the house. All your children are dead. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord give me what I had. Uh, the Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Now, that is an amazing person. This is a person who, it, what this whole first chapter, you say, wow, that's true of Job. What is Satan's first accusation? Pretty easy. Job only worships you because you've protected his stuff. He only gives, gives you, to get. That's Satan's accusation. You've made him wealthy, you've protected all of his stuff, take it away, and he will curse you. Did that happen? It did not. God stepped aside and said, you may test him. God certainly knew it would happen. He allows Job to be tested. Job comes through. Satan's not done. One day, the members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil, and he has maintained his integrity 
even though you urged me to harm him without cause. Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin, pish posh, whatever. A man will give up everything he has to save his life. But reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Honey, never encourage me to say that. This is not good. But Job replied, You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. God has allowed Satan to take all of his stuff, and now he allows Satan to take his health. And all of this is happening fast. This is a lot, if you haven't figured this out. This is a lot. When three of Job's friends heard, there's actually four, Another one showed up here who doesn't talk until the senior people speak. But there's actually four people who are coming. Three of them are, are mentioned right now. When they hear of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite. By the way, he's the shortest man in the Bible. I want that to sink in. Go ahead. Some of you, it may take you a little bit longer. Shoe height. Shoe height. Okay. Shortest man in the Bible. And Zophar the Naamathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. That was their practice in the day. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Wow. Satan's first accusation. The only reason Job worships you is because of what you give him. False accusation. God says, go ahead and try it. He tries it. Have you seen my servant Job? Right? Pish posh. Let me afflict him. Let me take away his health. He'll curse you to your face. Satan's second accusation, Job only worships you because you've protected his skin or his health. Allow him to suffer and you'll see. You'll see. Job, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Satan's come to town. And you know what I give to good little boys and girls? And you know what I give to bad ones? 
There's a theology of compensation running around in the book of Job. And guess who else believes it? Hasatan. Take away this and God and Job won't worship you anymore. Right? You, you've lived this. You know this. You've walked this theology of compensation. You may even walk it tonight. In which I, case I'd encourage you not to. But this is what's going on in the book of Job. Is this how God deals with mankind? Answer through the book of Job is no. But we're entering the story. Satan's second accusation is let him suffer and he will curse you to your face. There is a controversy going on between God and Satan. Would Job still worship God or curse him if he underwent personal suffering? This is the conflict that's set up in the book of Job. Would Job still worship God or curse him if he underwent personal suffering? So unknown to Job, God steps aside and lets Job enter the battle as his spiritual champion. Do you, know, do you see what God is doing here? God has picked his champion, and he's picked a good one. And he says, Job, come on, get on the battlefield. You'll be great. Here we go. I'm going to use you to prove that he's wrong. Who, Lord? Hasatan. I'm with you, Job. Ready? Will Job vindicate God's wisdom and God's ways? It's a great verse in 1 Peter chapter 5. Yes, I know that's in the New Testament. That's okay. It's all one big book. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Stay alert, says Peter. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around, looking, around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. This is what he does. Um, okay, now I'm really going to get in trouble. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. Um, I'm not telling you what to do for Halloween, and we're already past it, so whatever you did, is, it's a matter of your conscience. Um, I'm just going to remind you. Um, Hasatan is not a cute little red costume devil um, that he is using, perhaps, uh, to desensitize us to what's going on. If you think that's what the devil is because little kids dress up in those cute little devil costumes and it numbs your sense of who he is and what he's doing, victory for him. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying don't celebrate Halloween. I'm not saying that. Stop. Don't write me emails. I don't want them. I'm going to hit delete because I'm not telling you that. I'm just saying be wise. Be wise. 
He is not a fun little person to uh, cuddle with. That is not at all who he is. He is like a lion, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Do you know what that means? Right? Eat in whole. He is not our friend. He's not just a little bit bad. He is the enemy of everything God stands for. Will Job vindicate God's wisdom and his ways? Think of it this way. In spite of everything that Satan is going to put Job through, will he voluntarily continue to worship God? That's the conflict. Because if Job says, that's too much, Lord, that's too much, you've gone too far, and he begins to, to do this, he might as well, just like his wife encouraged him, just curse God and die. This is the premise, this is the problem that's put forth in the book of Job. Is Job going to continue to voluntarily worship God, or is he going to curse him, or shake his fist at him, or something like that? So far, good for Job. Job has not done any of that. The, the things that Job loses in rapid-fire succession here are amazing. If you, I know you, you read this and go, wow, that's really bad. Can you imagine if this happened to you? I mean, can, you can you even fathom this? He loses his family, his livelihood, and his wealth. Wham, done. Can you imagine that right now? Poof, all of that stuff is gone. He loses his reputation because of what we're going to talk about next week. He loses his wife's support and understanding. He loses his health. Job, who was once pleasing to God and fruitful, where do we leave Job? On the garbage dump. That's where Job has gone because he feels as discarded as common garbage. So you want to know how Job is feeling right now? Um, he's, he's feeling like a piece of yucky, yucky garbage on the garbage heap, scraping the boils and the stuff, whatever this means, on his body. This is where we leave him. This is God's battlefield champion. Game on. We leave Job on the garbage dump at the end of chapter 2. Well, you'd be right to ask, what does God want Job and us to learn? First, the book God, through the book of Job, wants us to review our theology. 1 Peter 4, 19. So don't lose your place in Job. But turn back to your 1 Peter 4. Nineteen. 
This is New Testament, by the way. Just want to make sure we're clear on that. Peter writes this, 1 Peter 4, verse 19. So, if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. What does Peter expect for the normal Christian's life? Suffering. What kind of suffering? Actually, if you read 1 Peter, unmerited suffering. If you suffer for doing wrong, what benefit is that to you? But if you suffer for doing what's right, God especially takes notice. And Peter says, if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. Challenging. The righteous don't always get blessed. The righteous don't always avoid suffering. I know I just read it in 1 Peter, but somebody should have also come to your mind before that. The Lord Jesus. Any person who's ever walked this earth more righteous than he? No. Did, was he always blessed? No. Did he suffer for cause? Yes. Us. Did he suffer for anything he did? No. Nope. It, it is not true that the righteous never suffer. It is not true that the righteous are always blessed. This is not how God deals with mankind. He does not deal with them in a theology of compensation. He deals with them according to sovereign grace. Grace, fundamentally means unmerited favor, God's unmerited favor. That's what he has showered upon Job. That's what he has showered upon you and me through Christ Jesus. Because God's, since grace is God's unmerited favor, I cannot demand it. I have no right to expect it. And cannot become angry if he is less gracious to me today than he was yesterday. Or if he chooses to favor someone else more highly than me. And God does it by his own sovereign good pleasure. Not cruelly, not as an evil person. But this is how God treats mankind. Fundamentally grace, sovereign grace. It is unmerited. Therefore, if tomorrow something were to befall me or you, and you'd say, God is being less gracious to me tomorrow than he is today, you, we don't get to shake our fist in his face and say, you're not being as gracious to me today as you were yesterday. That's out of bounds. Grace is not something I can continue to demand. He gives. He gives. He gives. And all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, he is a gracious God. So gracious. But there are things he's doing, like with Job, that are behind the curtain that you and I don't see or know about. 
So the first thing he wants us to do is to review our theology. The theology of compensation is hardwired into us. We cannot, it's so hard to not think in a theology of compensation. That's the problem. Thinking in terms of grace and God's sovereign grace is much, much harder. Be honest. Okay? No one, I don't want anyone to speak. Don't raise your hand and share your story. I, no. <laughs> Think of this to yourself. Keep it to yourself. The last time something you thought was bad happened to you, what was your first thought? Could have been along the lines of, I wonder what I did wrong. Boom! Theology of compensation. What did I do wrong? God is whacking me for doing wrong, and if I would just do right, I won't get the call in my stocking. I'll get something else. It's hardwired in us. Oh, man, that great thing just happened. Thank you, Lord. Ooh, ooh, I better not tell anybody because the other shoe will drop. What does that mean? He's going to whack me if I start (laughs) talking about this stuff. That's theology of compensation. It is alive and well in your life and mine too. This is not how God deals with mankind and is definitely not how God deals with Christians. So he wants us to review our theology. Second, how does God deal with men? John 9. Remember the story in John 9? Yes, I know that that's also in the New Testament. Got it. Good. Remember the story? Man born blind. And the disciples say, who sinned? This man or his parents? What is that? Theology of compensation. And what does Jesus say? Neither one. (laughs) This was done for the glory of God. If I was a disciple, I would have gone, ha, what? (laughs) No, no, no. You're rocking my world. And he's like, I rocked it. 2,000 years before this in this book. (laughs) Did you not read it carefully, Peter? I don't deal with people based on a theology of compensation. I deal with them for my glory and by grace. Psalm 103, verse 10. Great psalm. Psalm 103, verse 10. You say, well, I don't think I I do this. Well, I want you to memorize this verse. Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. Verse 11. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. How does God deal with people? He doesn't treat me as my sins deserve. I memorize it in the NIV, NIV 84. He doesn't treat me as my sins deserve, nor reward me according to my iniquities. That's not how he does things. It's not about compensation. It's about grace. So the first thing that he wants Job to do and he wants us to do is to review our theology. The second thing he wants us to do is review our values 
something that comes through in the book of Job, and it will actually come through in the entire Old Testament, and I would suggest to you New Testament, fellowship with God is more important than understanding our circumstances. We have uh, prayed as an elder board and seen people, we didn't heal them, but God chose to do that. He doesn't do it all the time, but he does do it. And we have had people come back and tell us what God did. And they said, it was horrible, bad, and awful, but I wouldn't trade a thing because of my walk with God. And I walked with God in a way that I hadn't before. And they're like, don't get me wrong. I don't want this to recur. I don't want to go through this again. (laughs) But what it did to my walk with the Lord was amazing, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. We need to review our values. Fellowship with God is more important than understanding our circumstances. You want an Old Testament example? The three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get thrown in the fiery furnace. Who's in there with them? A pre-incarnate Jesus. <laughs> and they're like, I'd, we'd rather be in the fire with him than out there. They even smelled like smoke. Not burned. Fellowship with God. This is what our human brains don't get. Fellowship with God is more important than knowing why. Knowing why has never truly healed anyone. Because you know what happens when you get the answer to the first why? There's a second or a third. There's always another why. Why? That's why that, but why this? You, it's just, you go on and on, and there's no resolution to it. Knowing who is more important than knowing why. To trust God and embrace unmerited suffering rather than seeking to escape it is what God wants Job and us to learn. The next time I undergo unmerited suffering, I might ask, what can I get out of this? Instead of how can I get out of this? Well, you may have a why question bubbling around right now in your brain. Well, why should the righteous embrace suffering? So if the book of Job is about how we're supposed to do this, we're supposed to embrace it, I want to I embrace it, why should I do that? Because it glorifies God's name and grows God's saint. How does it do that? First, it glorifies God's name because it reveals our voluntary worship as God's surrendered servant. It is the first two parts of Job 1 and 2. It's the tests. If you're in it, and you know what I mean, some of you have been in it, some of you probably are in it. When you voluntarily worship in the midst of suffering, it glorifies God's name. Because there's no other reason but him 
that you would worship him. You're not getting anything, right? He didn't fill your bank account. It's not about health, being perfect health. You continue to worship him. It glorifies his name. And it grows you. It refines our character as fire refines and purifies precious metal. I don't know if any of you work with gold or silver. If you do, I'd like some. But if you work with it, I've read about how they prepare it, if they're going to make a, you know, a, a ring or a setting or a something. And let's just say it's silver. You know, they put it in a crucible, and they, whew, they heat it up until it's completely molten. And then there's like some dross that comes to the surface, and they skim it off. And they know it's done when they can look into it and they see the reflection. How does God know we're done? As he skims off the dross, when the heat goes up, and he looks in there, and he says, I see myself. Well done. But how did we get there? (laughs) Fire! How else does it glorify God's name? It demonstrates our motivation of love for God not compensation. It deepens our understanding of God's character. This is one of the ways he uses to grow us. It glorifies his name because it silences Satan's false accusations, just like in the book of Job. How does it grow us? It strengthens us. It turns saints into soldiers. Sometimes, saints would rather share stories in the mess hall than go out to the front lines and fight. Do you remember we're in a war? We are. <laughs> the war's not done yet. It's over. Jesus is going to win. I've read to, the, I've read to the end. Jesus wins. But there's a war going on right now. And sometimes we just... We're far more content to stick it out in the mess hall than to get out on the front lines and fight. It strengthens us. It turns us into soldiers. It glorifies God's name because it affirms and vindicates God's wisdom and ways. And it grows us because it allows us to trust and rest in God's benevolent wisdom. One other passage just comes to my mind. Ephesians chapter 3. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. can't remember exactly where it is. I'll have to find it. Ah, chapter 3, verse 10. Well, let's back up to verse 8. Can't get enough of Ephesians. Chapter 3, verse 8. Paul writes this, Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone 
this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you understand what Paul is saying? Everything you do is on display to heaven. In the same way, Job was on display. Wowzy. There's only one thing the angels could not have seen before Lucifer's rebellion. Grace. They saw God. They'd never seen his grace. So he says, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to create another race of beings that's just a little lower than the angels. And I'm going to show my grace to them. And I'm going to send my son to be like them and to redeem them. And then after a while, says in the book of Hebrews, God's going to reverse this. And he says in 1 Corinthians, don't you know we're going to judge angels? <laughs> and Jesus says, I want you to be where I am. And angels are ministering servants. They serve me. And because you're family, they're going to serve us. And so they're watching. It's like this. They're looking over right now, watching, going, look at that. Unbelievable. That person has never even seen God. That person, what that human being can know about God is just like about that much. And look what they're doing. They love him and they're worshiping him. And they go, yes! We are on display. Ah, good stuff. For next week, lots of reading. Start tonight, Job 3 to 37. It's not easy. It's Eastern poetry. Uh, just try to get through it, and I'll put it together for you next week. Good, good stuff. Lord, thank you for your word. It is truth. Your spirit and your word will continue to transform us, and we don't want to be transformed into anyone or anything other than more like the Lord Jesus. We love him because he first loved us. You have always treated us with grace, never rewarded us according to what we had done, never rewarded us according to our iniquities, even today. You treat us with such mercy and such grace. We love you. We thank you. And tonight we worship you again uh, with full grateful hearts for who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you. And we say thank you this evening in Jesus' name. Amen.